Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. So nice to see you all this morning. I'm Pastor Scott. I'm the worship media and young adults pastor, and uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to speak with you. Um, who's had turkey so far? Who is having turkey today? Who's having turkey tomorrow? And who's having turkey through the rest of the week? <laughs> excellent, excellent. So uh, last week, Pastor Todd started off uh, his sermon with what he called a morning groaner. Um, I like to call them dad jokes. And uh, seeing as I'm about to enter into fatherhood, I thought I would offer up my own dad joke for you. So here it is. Why did the Clydesdale give the pony a glass of water? Because he was a little horse. Thank you. You've been a great audience. Thank you. Thank you. So today we're going to continue our series on continuing in the faith. And uh, today's topic is continuing to speak the word. So why don't you stand with me and we're going to read the scriptures together. You're go- I'm going to read the blue question mark. And you're going to read the black. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as your community to worship and to study the scriptures. We pray that you would give us a mouth to hear and ears to comprehend what you would want us to understand this morning, Lord. Be with us as we celebrate uh, Thanksgiving with our families. Be pleased, be praised. In your son's wonderful name, amen. You may be seated. So if you'll allow me this morning, I'd like to set up our text. Um, just to give a little bit of context, I had, a, I had a, a pastor who told me that a text without context is a pretext. So I want to give you some context. Um, our players here are Peter and John, and they have, this is following, just following Jesus' death, resurrection, and his ascension into heaven, they have been invigorated by this, and they are going and preaching in the Middle East telling the stories of what Jesus has done and bringing people into the way or into Christianity. Um, we have also in this, in this scene, we have the religious and political leaders of the time, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they're annoyed. They are uh, a little frustrated, um, partially because what Jesus did and what Jesus represented was a major challenge and a direct challenge to the ruling authorities, He presented a political problem. He presented a religious problem. He presented an economic problem. He, in himself, was a wrench in the machine. So, and then they killed him. But then he didn't stay dead. So kind of frustrating. And now his dirty, uneducated followers are preaching about this Jesus guy and continuing to speak the word. So they grab a couple of these guys, Peter and John, and they drag them before the court, and they gently beat them up and threaten them to keep their mouths shut. So the problem is, it doesn't work. And this is where we pick up our text. So there's three things I want to talk about this morning. And the first thing we want to talk about is the word. Now, 
when you're preaching, a good sermon must always have a reference to the Greek. Always. If it doesn't, it's not a good sermon. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's just cliche, you know. We always got to have a reference to the Greek. Anyway, so I went and studied the Greek because I am a well-trained Bible college student and every, every sermon must include that reference. And I had a feeling in this text that when, when Luke, who we think wrote Acts, when Luke wrote it, I thought he was going to the, use the word euangelion for good news, which is, which is um, a common translation. The word that Luke used, hashtag plot twist, is actually logos. And when we hear the word logos, there's two meanings that this carries. The first meaning that it carries is as a title that's given to Jesus. In this sense of the word logos, Jesus is God's ultimate communication of truth about himself. Okay, let me say it again. The, um, Jesus is God's ultimate communication of truth about himself. The Logos is God's revealed in, through, and as Jesus Christ. And this is the sense of, uh, of the word in John 1, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was Jesus. Um, Jesus is literally the word of God. The second sense of the word Logos is the communication produced by or representative of God and his mind. For example, the gospel. And I think what Luke is doing by using the word logos for good news or gospel is that he's drawing a straight line between Jesus and the message. There's an intimate connection between Jesus as the truth of God and the proclamation of that fact. The whole Bible, what Luke is saying, the whole Bible is speaking about Jesus who is the ultimate communication of God himself to the truth of God. So in order to speak the word, which is what we're talking about this morning, in order to speak the word, we must first understand what the word is. And this morning, I want to submit to you that the gospel is in fact a paradox. Not a paradox side by side, but a paradox. That is, this is what I mean. This is what I mean when I say paradox. The gospel... The good news, the Logos, is both tremendously disorienting or disturbing, and it is both and profoundly hopeful. So let's talk about the gospel as disorienting. If we look a few verses earlier in the text, we see Peter and John who wrote preaching about Jesus to the Jews, and they are subsequently arrested and threatened to shut up. Why? Why? Because the gospel represents a threat to the society that's been created. It upsets the norm. It upends the apple cart. It goes against the grain. The reality of Jesus as the ultimate communication of God's truth is a difficult pill to swallow. I had the opportunity in May to uh, do an intensive course for my master's degree. And the professor was a man by the name of Rupin Das. And uh, he had spent a number of years working compassion ministries, and that was the course we were talking about. And in his text, he says, contextualization will always result in the gospel standing in judgment of society, and therefore there needs to be critical reflection by the church on what God has to say about issues of injustice, social concern, 
traditions, cultures, and values in a specific context. The gospel upsets the norms. I think of the young man who comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, and he says, Teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says to him, Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. The reaction of the young man, this young wealthy man, is pain, is anguish, because the gospel can be uncomfortable and disorienting. Let me give you another couple of examples. Uh, Late 1800s, William Wilberforce becomes an evangelical Christian and gives Gives his, makes his life goal to abolish slavery in England. 20 years he fought. The gospel is disorienting. It upsets the norm. Bring it a little bit closer to home. Pastor Todd spoke about this last week when he asked the question, who owns what? And you can watch that online, gtsubbury.ca. He says, so the gospel is disorienting to those who are afflicted by affluence. It is disorienting to those who are considered accepted according to society. When I, was, uh, when I was in Bible college, I was doing my undergrad, there was a friend of mine, which is going to rename, remain nameless, who was a missionary uh, to the Southeast Asia. And we were in a class talking about evangelism, and I nearly caused a fight because I said to him and to the class, somewhat rashly, that it is much harder to evangelize in North America than it is in Southeast Asia. And the theory behind this for me is that in the poor places in the world, there's a very felt, a very real need. In North America, very few of us have things that we go without. So, trying to sell the gospel, trying to tell someone who has everything that they need Jesus, that's a tough sell. And the gospel is disorienting because it requires that we each sacrifice, that we refocus our priorities, that we recognize that we in North America have been given so much, and the responsibility is great in return. It is critical of society, and that which is... It is critical of society and that which society is deemed normal. So returning to our text, when a couple of guys who were up to no good started making trouble in the neighborhood, started preaching about this guy Jesus, they needed to be dealt with because the gospel which they preach and the gospel we preach stands in judgment of oppressive social, political, and economic norms of the day. The gospel carries the potential to be a cold splash of water to the face. The gospel is disorienting. But it is at the same time, it is at the same time, it's hopeful. The gospel, while disorienting, also comes with immense hope. We see this this interesting passage in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And to set at liberty those who were oppressed to proclaim proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So while the gospel may be a slap in the face for some, for those who have not, are not, those who are considered less than, 
the ones who society deems as unacceptable or untouchable, the gospel empowers and is compassionate. It lifts, it cares. In Jesus, the Father is deeply moved by and concerned for the poor and the outcast, the widows and the orphans, those with cancer, those with mental illness, who are having a tough time making ends meet, who are overtired and overstressed. It is the voice of Jesus who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. It is the voice of the Father to those who are looking for a do-over in life. Behold, I am making all things new. There's a, there's a story from a number of years ago about a research lab. And the scientists in this particular lab were working on a project. They were studying the effects of hope. So what they would do is they would have two vats of water, and they would put an equal number of rats in each vat. In the one vat, they just, and they would just leave the rats in the water to see what would happen. In the one vat, the rats were not touched. They were just left to see how long they would survive. In the second vat, at regular intervals, the scientists would lift the rat out of the water and put it back in. As you can imagine, in the vat where the scientists did not interfere, the rats died within about an hour. In the second vat, where the scientists were regularly lifting the rats out of the water, the rats actually survived for 24 hours. Those animals somehow hoped that if they could stay afloat just a little longer, anyone would reach down and rescue them. The gospel is that hand up. It is the hand out of the miry clay. It's Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon the rock. You want to talk about the irony of the gospel, though, the paradoxical nature. So just a few moments ago, I mentioned that the gospel is disorienting, particularly for those who are affluent. But there's still hope for them, too. I have met many people who are wealthy and who are miserable. And I think to myself, you need Jesus, you just don't know it yet. In the gospel, there is hope for reconciliation and hope for redemption for rich and the poor. That's the word. The second thing I want to talk about is the church and the word. And I pick up the texts. And when they were released, they went to their friends. This is Peter and John. They went to their friends. They went to their community and they went to church. Peter and John had a deep understanding of the gospel and the power of community and how the two are deeply intertwined. And so I think in order, to, in order to speak about how we should speak the truth, we must think about the community that is, in, that is formed as a result of the gospel, us, the church. This is Leslie Newbegin. The Bible comes into our hands as a book of a community. And neither the book nor the community are properly understood except in their reciprocal relationship with each other. The Bible functions as an authority only within a community that is committed to faith and obedience 
and is embodying that commitment in an act of discipleship that embraces the whole of life, public and private. And so there's two roles of the church that I'd like to talk about this morning that might be helpful for our discussion. And these roles deal with how we interact with the Word and how we interact with our society. The first thing is, I'm stealing it directly from Walter Brueggemann. He wrote a book called The Prophetic Imagination. And in his book, he argues that the role of the church is to assess where the society is at, assess where the world is at, and imagine what could be out of the text and then point that way. That's the role of the church. The church is to be a prophet for society. This is not the way things were meant to be. There is a better way. He draws the image of a new song. Use this as an example. He says, when the new king comes, when a new reality dawns, when a new king rules, it is new song time. It has always been, a, been new song time when the new king arrives, and there is no more calling of the skilled mourners who know how to cry on call. There's a new reality dawning. There's something new on the horizon. And so Peter and John, we're going to pick it up in verse 10. They says, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you as well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. This is language of announcement and pronouncement. It's the announcement of a new era. It is time to sing a new song, and this is the role of the church. It is our job to boldly announce through action and then through word that there is a different reality. There's a new reality. There's an alternative. There's a new kingdom, a new vision for the future in Jesus. And the truly exciting thing is that While we get to announce this, we get to participate. We get to be a part of this new kingdom. You get to imagine what God is doing in society and get to be a part of that. The role of the church is prophetic imagination. The second role is to embody the word. To become the word to other people as Jesus is the word to us. The church, you, me, us. The church is the sign and the symbol of God's coming kingdom. It is a foretaste. The church carries this disorienting and this hopeful message to the culture in which it has been placed and works toward the full realization of all that God wants this world to be. I think of, I think of spring when I think of this idea. The church is to the world what the budding of trees is to the summer. It's a foretaste. It's the beginning of something happening. It is the hopeful expectation that the dreaded cold, the hardness, and the darkness are all going away and turning into those warm, soft, bright summer days. There's a great expectation 
And this is, this is the image. The church carries the image of Revelation chapter 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We get to be a part of that. We get to that, embody that in our workplaces, our schools, with the people we come in contact with. This is what we mean by being missional. We enter into the brokenness, brokenness of our coworkers, our classmates, our families, and announce that there is something new on the horizon. We represent that newness. We are Jesus to those around us. The third thing we want to talk about this morning is the spirit, the church, and the word. Because there are challenges to speaking the word. Because of its disorienting nature, the church, you and I, we will experience pushback and dissatisfaction. Change is painful. Upsetting the norm will always cause resent. And the gospel upsets the norm. See, what I found as I was studying this text, what I found most interesting is how Peter and John and the community of faith responded to the threats. And it is shockingly not the way I would act. I am like, you threaten me, we're going to square up and that's going to be that. Peter and John and the community go, no, no, Lord, Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. No fight. Grant us the courage to keep doing what we're doing. What I find most interesting is not what they prayed, but what they didn't pray. What they didn't pray was that the threatening or persecution would go away. What they did pray for was courage to keep doing what they're doing in spite of the persecution. And I think this is the result of a community that is deeply in tune with what God is doing by his spirit. It is a community that is in communion with God through prayer. This deep communion with God leads to a courage and an inability to stay, to, an inability to stay quiet about announcing the new king. Jesus in John 16 speaks of the power of a community who's in tune with the Spirit. As he's getting ready to to ascend to heaven, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. If you scroll through that chapter a little more, you're going to come to this, probably one of my favorite verses. Jesus says, I have said all of these things to you, that in me you may have peace. And if you, if you like highlight in your device or you underline, just underline this next phrase. In the world you will have tribulation. In the world you will have trouble. There will be struggle, but take heart. 
I have overcome the world. You see, speaking the word, which is what we are called to do, speaking the word is not something to be done without due consideration. There will always be consequences for announcing a new reality and upsetting that old reality. John, Peter, and the disciples recognized this, but they continued on. They recognized that this announcing, proclaiming this new reality was an imperative. In tune with the Spirit, they were emboldened to speak. The reality is that we live in a culture which abhors pain. The studies are coming out that North Americans, we will do anything we can to avoid being in any kind of pain. As a result of this, and you can look this up, Brene Brown is a prolific author and she's talked about this a lot. Um, We have now become the most overdrugged and heavily indebted society in the world. And all of this is an attempt to avoid pain. And so I submit this morning that the reality of speaking the gospel to the world is that there's going to be some pain. There's going to be some discomfort. There's going to be some friction. There are always going to be people who don't react well to having their paradigm upset. And we are going to have to engage with that pain and realize it and engage with others' pain in the hope of sharing the gospel. This is unavoidable. It is for us to be in tune with the Spirit and to take courage, not for us to hide from it. Newbegin, and I want to close with this. He says, Christians can live and bear witness under any regime, whatever its ideology. But Christians can never seek refuge in a ghetto where their faith is not proclaimed as public truth for all. Let me read that one more time. Christians can live and bear witness under any regime, whatever its ideology. But Christians can never seek refuge in a ghetto where their faith is not proclaimed as public truth for all. And so we must speak the truth with boldness. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your new reality, Lord. We thank you that you have broken into our world, upset our paradigm, and offered us an alternative way. Lord, I pray for each person in this room that you would give us the courage to live that new way out and to announce it and proclaim it through deeds and then words wherever we are. Be with us, Lord, as we go our ways and enjoy time with family, eating turkey. We ask all these things in your son's wonderful name. Amen.